0: Welcome to the 49th episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today's guest is Scott Hutchings. Scott Hutchings is the president and founder of Global Coin Solutions, a company that takes foreign coins and converts it to local currency. Scott has held many jobs in his lifetime. His first job was in a warehouse. He worked there for six years and moved his way up. He got a job one day selling computers for IBM. He knew nothing about sales or computers, but that didn't stop him. He had a natural instinct towards sales and worked hard. He was second in revenue for the entire chain in his first 11 weeks. He moved around to different departments and always made a great impression. He worked in marketing, project management, purchasing and other departments. He worked some other jobs before finally coming across a company called CoinCo International. He learned the business and eventually bought up the assets from the company to do it on his own. He started Global Coin Solutions and was able to grow the company to 3-4x to the original company. Listen to Scott's story and learn how he progressed throughout his career. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show is impossible without you. Let's get the show started. So today I have Scott Hutchings from Global Coin Solutions. Can you tell the audience what you do? Basically what we do is we enable charities to be able to collect
1: donations in any currency. By saying that, I'm talking about cold hard cash. I'm not talking about crypto or, you know, anything like that. We're talking about, in the case of the, the US, as an example, how much Canadian money is floating around down in the US? We have thousands, possibly millions of Canadians visiting Florida in a normal year. It's a second home to a lot of Canadians and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Canadian money down there. At the end of the day, Americans, it might as well be a slug. Because it's not, you can't do anything with it. So what we do is, is we actually work with the charities. They collect the donations doesn't, and it doesn't matter what currency it is. They do the collection. We arrange to move the the donations. We bring them back to our office. We separate the different currencies. We count everything. We've, we've got it all sorted out and then we repatriate it. We return it to the country that it came from. And Quite frankly, that's the only way that you can realize the value of
0: foreign coin because nobody wants it. So you got to send it back home. Wow. That's such a interesting business. Like something like when you think about it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But not something that you would think about is actually a business.
1: And nobody does. It's very interesting that in Canada and the U.S., nobody's doing this. But if you go to if you go to England, I'm not joking. Virtually every single charity has a foreign currency
0: drive. They all collect foreign currency. Wow. Is it because it's just so much more common to travel between the countries over there? Because there are so many people in the US who have never even left their state, right? I'm
1: glad you brought that up because one of the statistics that floats around out there is that only 40% of Americans have passports. But let's put some perspective on that, though. 40% of 335 million people. That's a lot of people. That's double the entire population of the UK. The entire population. So while it may be a small number as a, as a percentage of the population, it's still an absolutely massive, massive number. In Canada, I estimate that there's between two and three billion dollars of foreign currency just sitting around collecting dust, doing nothing. In the US, I have a hard time putting a, a
0: firm number on it, but it's nothing less than $10 billion. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I have a few dollars, so you can yeah, have that. Everybody does. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> let's go back to the beginning. What do you want to be in high school? I'm sure I, I'm not that
1: different than than a lot of people. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I went to high school, we actually had grade 13. I kind of coasted through. I was, I was one of those students who didn't have to do a lot of work to get good marks. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a gifted student or anything like that. I'm not, you know, I'm average, but I was able to retain things well enough that, that I didn't have to put a whole lot of effort into preparing. I remember one of the objectives, one of the thoughts that I had was going into the military. And it's interesting because there was just an article written about a Canadian who did exactly what I wanted to do, except that I wanted to do it like 40 years ago what he succeeded in doing was he he joined the military. He went to military college. He became a fighter pilot and he got onto an exchange program with the U S Navy. And he was actually flying fighters off of aircraft carriers. And I'm not joking. That's what I wanted to do, but I think he was the first and he just did it. But things happen. Um, I was in a relationship and I didn't think that uh, going to military college would be the right thing to do. So finished high school. And one of the things that I decided I did not want to do was computer science. It seemed everybody was going in that direction.
0: And what year was this around?
1: Uh, 86. Okay. So I just said, that's not where I want to go. And then partway through grade 13, I, I had a realization that, you know, I, I'd like to actually get into automotive design, but I didn't have the marks to get into an engineering course like that. And as it turns out, I left high school. I worked for a bit and then got married right away. That wouldn't be a a smart thing to do either. So I just, I started working and I worked. I worked hard. The first company I was at was a company called the Brick Warehouse. They were a furniture company here in Canada and I was there for eight and a half years. It was my first real job. I worked in the warehouse in the distribution center. I worked in one of the stores and ultimately I decided to leave there because I couldn't see where I would go next. That was my challenge. And I'm not joking when I say that there are people that I worked with back in the late eighties and, and early nineties who are still in the same job doing the same thing. In hindsight, it was absolutely the best thing to do. From there, I joined IBM. I started working. I started selling computers. I had no sales experience. I had no computer experience, but. Just like everything else I did at the time, I went in with both feet and I excelled. You know, I just, I worked hard, did really well. I spent over 13 years between IBM and Lenovo after they purchased the IBM PC division and did just about every function within the company that you can think of, sales, marketing, management. I was uh, involved in finance towards the end. Uh, i was in project management so it was it, it was a great rounding education if you will then i was actually involved with a friend of mine he had started a small business and it was something that i wanted to get involved in and when lenovo came along and was handing out packages i was one of the people that they wanted to package out i'm like sure it's time they had actually done that three years previously and right. It was a year after they had, they had finalized the purchase and I found another job within the company. So they didn't get rid of me, but the next time they came around, I was ready to go. You know, I'd done what I wanted to do and I had my next job lined up anyways. I was working for a small business and it was about as far away, far away from computers and that area as you could possibly get. It was a specialty garage, very different, but it was very educational, learned a lot of stuff. And then moved on, had a couple of, call it uh, intermediate roles. They weren't really things that were going to stick long-term. And then, and I'm not joking when I say this, I applied to a posting on LinkedIn. I read the job description, and, I, and, and at that point, I was, I was actively looking for something different because what I was doing, what I wasn't happy with. And I looked at the job description and the way that they had it laid out. I looked at it, and I'm like, I can do that. I'm not sure what the company does, but I can do the job they're asking asking me to do. So I applied. Next thing you know, I get an email from somebody in England wanting to set up an interview. And the regional manager, the the director of the overseas offices, I'm not sure, I can't remember what his title was, but he came over and interviewed me. We hit it off really well. It was basically the predecessor to what I'm doing now. So they were... They were doing something very similar. So I ran their, I ran their North American operations for a year and a half. And then they ended up shutting down. They had other business lines in the UK. They were having trouble over there. And so the entire business shut down. That's where it starts to get, you know, things really start to get interesting because at that point. So we're going back six years ago. So, you know, that would put me at close enough to 50. I had a couple of choices. I either go back out on the unemployment line and try and find a job, or I figure out how to pick up the pieces that were left behind and start my own business. I liked what I was doing. It was good work. I had people that I I was also concerned about, and I also had the charities that I was dealing with. It was kind of a a no-brainer looking back, but at the same time, I'd never started a business before. I'd run businesses for other people, but I'd never started one. I'd never owned one. And that's an intimidating thing. Like I said, it was the right thing to do. It was something that, that I enjoyed doing. Your reaction there at the beginning when I was explaining what it is that I do, right? I mean, that's the reaction that everybody has. Like it's, it's cool. It's different. It's neat. And when you realize that we're able to help charities raise money, we don't charge them for the work, the work, the cost come out of what's collected. So it's a, it's a self-sustaining program. And on top of that, I get to put people to work. It doesn't get any better than that. It's better than selling computers. It's better than fixing cars. It's better than setting up showrooms of furniture. At the end of the day, being able to do something that you enjoy doing, that is quite frankly, different than everybody else is doing. And on top of that, to be able to put people to work, it's what I need as a, as a person. It's been a uh, a learning experience like no other, I'll tell you that. And, and as a matter of fact, right now I'm in the midst of pulling back in some of the other functions and doing them myself. I've never
0: been a bookkeeper. I'm doing that now too. <laughs> you're you're always picking things up. You just if you got to do it, you just you find a way to get it done. And that's the thing. That's what I
1: think happens with with most entrepreneurs. You either figure out how, or you or you close up shop. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You got to get it done, you know, just the same way as I've, I've got to ship all of this foreign currency to different places around the world. You got to figure out how to do it. If you can't, then you've got a big problem.
0: Okay. Can we kind of go back to your earlier job? could you mentioned you were never in sales. Do you mind sharing like how that first went for you? Because there's always so many interesting stories relating to that stuff.
1: When I was at that point with the brick warehouse that I was, I, I needed a change. You know, of course, go out and apply to different job postings and, and at the time IBM in Canada owned a retail chain. They actually had at their, at the warehouse outlet or at the warehouse, their distribution, main distribution center, they had a, an outlet store. The store was hiring for an assistant manager. By that point, I had had a computer for, I think it was about six months, four to six months. I really didn't know a whole lot about computers. I've never sold anything. Honestly, had never been involved in sales. But I guess I aced the interview. I mean, it wasn't just a sales role. It was the assistant manager for the store. I had the management experience. I had the people experience. I had the merchandising experience. And I guess he figured that he could just, he could train the sales. I went in there. I was hired. I started working on October 2nd. The first two weeks that I worked, I was essentially shadowing other people. I wasn't ringing up any sales myself. There was no sales that were going against, against me. And one thing to keep in mind is, is working in the warehouse outlet, everything was essentially half price, right? Cause it was all used. It was all refurbished. It was all open box, but it was essentially all half price. The first, first two weeks go by. They're comfortable that I know what I'm doing now. So I start selling. I start ringing up sales. I start dealing with all of this myself. And by the end of that quarter, so December 31st, so I had had only 11 weeks of sales, not not 13. I actually came in second in total revenue for the entire chain. It's really interesting because the, the, the guy who outsold me were polar opposites. He could have, and I don't mean to disparage used car salespeople, <laughs> but he could have been a used car salesperson. Everything to him was the greatest thing since sliced bread. That was the line he used at least once in every sales transaction he did. Whereas I was the complete opposite. I worked on a, on a consultation basis. You know, somebody comes in, I need to know what it is they need. What do they need? What are they using? What are they doing? And then I would find what for them. There would be times where they would come in and explain to me what it is they're trying to do and the computer that they already have. And the answer was they don't need one because what they have will work. And I would tell them that. So, you know, sometimes I would just simply walk people out and, you know, thanks for coming. And, and other times, whether they came back to see me afterwards or, or they just decided right then and there, they, they would trust me to sell them something that would work for them. Even though they didn't need need one, they wanted one. I never pushed anything on anybody. I never would. I never will. Uh, It's not the way I sell. It was quite interesting. And it it caught a lot of people's attention. I went from working in the warehouse outlet to they moved me to a um, a boutique, a ThinkPad, a, a laptop boutique store that was dealing with mostly business customers. And I'm not joking. I realize that there's a, a differential in the dollar here, but in 1996, in February of 1996, I sold the ThinkPad. It was the top of the line ThinkPad, and it was ten thousand nine hundred dollars. And we upgraded the memory. I think I think it had eight megabytes of RAM.
0: Yeah, that sounds about correct for that time.
1: And and we doubled it. We had another eight megabytes of RAM, and it
0: was another nine hundred dollars. That's crazy. Cause I have 64 gigs of RAM right now. And it just, it's just crazy how, you know, technology has changed.
1: Yeah. So I worked there for six months and then I went to, uh, I went to a consumer store. I worked in a mall. And from there they brought me into head office where I actually managed the inventory of all of the computers, all of the computers for sale in all of the stores across Canada. And that bridged me into IBM as a, as a full-time IBM employee. At the end of the day, it comes down to hard work. It comes down to believing in yourself that you can do it. At the time, IBM had very, very, very few what they call professional hires. They always required degrees, and there was very few people that they would ever hire without them, but they hired me. how you convince them? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of of convincing at that point because I had been hired by the store manager of the warehouse outlet and he was autonomous to hire who he wanted. And at the time, the retail chain was a separate entity, right? It was owned by IBM. It wasn't, it wasn't IBM. While I was within that company, um, IBM took a, a different stance on the structure of their businesses and they basically decided, if we want a business that we own, or, or you know, it's at arm's length, or whatever the case may be, then we're going to bring it into IBM. And if we're not going to bring it into IBM, then we're going to cut it off and we're going to sell it. And they decided that they wanted the stores, so they brought the stores into IBM. Every management person, and I wasn't management at the time, every store manager, every head office manager was made an IBM employee right away. And there was two other people. Non-management people who are made IBM employees right away. And I was one of the two. Like I said, everybody could knew my worth. They knew what I was, what I was capable of. I did good work, even though uh, at the time I wasn't out there selling. We had going into going into the fourth quarter, one year, we had a real bad inventory problem that we didn't have enough and IBM didn't have enough. They wanted to make sure that their resellers had sufficient product so they wouldn't allow us to to take any of it i literally had to move inventory from one store to another store to another store to ensure that we could sell the stuff off we did we managed to hit our targets even though the expectation uh, i think in early december was that we weren't going to because the inventory was in the wrong places at the time each store manager was able to order his own stuff so up until that point to grab up whatever inventory they could get their hands on when we realized that we were going to be we were going to be very hard pressed to make our numbers i went to management and i said i can fix this but you have to let me and it meant pulling stuff away from other stores they weren't going to sell it it just wasn't there it wasn't the right computer for them right it just they were not the right place for it so i would move it and the other store that i moved it to would sell it and Ultimately, some stores didn't make their make their goals, other stores exceeded their goals, but as a chain, we exceeded our plan, which made everybody happy.
0: So you worked in you said marketing, project management. How'd you sort of move into these roles and you know, since you didn't have formal education or experience in those areas, how'd you get up to speed and do a good job in those roles? That's an
1: interesting interesting question. So one of the things about IBM Is that they want their people moving every 18 to 24 months. They want them in different areas. And part of the philosophy is just simply by allowing an employee to move within the company, they don't have to leave the company to get a new job. So you can retain talent. And the more an employee knows about different parts of the business, the more valuable they become. I was actually following somebody else's footsteps. There was a guy who came ahead of me. Uh, you know, he did similar things in the stores. Uh, he went to head office. I ended up following his path partway, anyways, until we became IBM. We sort of merged the IBM stores with the IBM Direct, the uh, the one eight hundred call center, and the website. We moved everything together because it was all retail, whereas the stores originally were separate. And I went from managing the inventory in the stores to managing the retail inventory within IBM. And then I was working side by side with, with another guy. He was the marketing guy. He was the guy who was putting together these, the specials, the bundles. I backed him up. Eventually we became, uh, you know, sort of a tag team. He moved on to other things and I took over what he was doing. And like I said, it just every 18 to 24 months. Part of your development is what are you going to do now? Where are you going to go next? And your manager would guide you and try and if he saw, he or she saw something that they thought would fit, they would recommend it to you. That's one of the, one of the projects. So I went from marketing to being involved in a project that was IBM was, was instituting SAP from an ordering perspective, ordering and, and inventory management. And ultimately their goal was they didn't want to have a warehouse in Canada. They wanted to ship straight from the manufacturing plant, whether that was in Guadalajara, Mexico, or if it was in China, it didn't matter. They wanted it to go straight from where it was manufactured to the customer. Because of some of the different areas that I had already been involved in, my manager thought that this would be a great project. He was actually heading it up. It was under his portfolio and he thought that I would be a good fit for me. So he moved me over to there. And I'll tell you that our first test, we dropped an order. And in six business days, we had delivery from
0: China to Toronto for a customer. That's crazy. That's quick. It worked. So now let's talk about more of your current business. So you started in 2015. You had some experience with the previous business. Now, how was it? Because it's always a little scary and just overwhelming starting a new business. How was the process like for you? It was all of those things. Scary, overwhelming. Overwhelming. I had to pick up pieces. My relationship
1: with the clients that I had had was solid, but of course you're a brand new company. Small. It doesn't even begin to describe how small I was. It took some partnerships, external partnerships to, in some cases, to convince other people. But once they started going, um, you know, it was, it was full steam ahead. Things actually got so well. Things were going so well. That one of the external partners that I had, ironically, they were based in the UK as well. By the way, just in case you didn't realize, the center of the currency exchange world is the UK. They came to me and they said, we're working with, with this one partner. Somebody who is doing some, some outsourcing work for us can't do it anymore. Can you take over that outsourcing work? We also want to look at how we can convince our client to move to you totally. I started just simply by handling the outsourcing, doing the work that needed to be done for this client. And then discussions happened between the company in the UK and the, and the charity in, in the US. Um, you know, of course we don't have an Atlantic ocean between us. I'm in Toronto, they're in New York City. So the synergy of working with me was really strong. And I'll tell you, that's, it's my biggest client. It's one of, if not the biggest charity in the world. And they're partnered with what used, what was, I don't know, I don't know where everybody fits these days, but they're, they're partnered with the largest airline in the world. And that was very, that was a daunting task to negotiate the terms of, of that agreement because it was unlike anything I'd ever done before. And it was just, you know, the potential for them is enormous, but I knew what I was doing was good. You know, at the end of the day, even today, even six years ago, if you ask me where, where money is going, the answer is it's not going anywhere. So I'm not worried that, you know, I'm going to phase myself out of a, out of a job, especially when you look at, you know, North America never having done this before. My numbers may be. Maybe only a fraction of what's out there. I don't know. But I think there's a lot of charities that we can help and a lot of money that we can put in their hands. And at the end of the day, the more we're doing, the more people I have to employ. And I couldn't be happier about that.
0: So what are some mistakes you've made along the way?
1: One of the big things is when you're doing it all yourself, it's hard to keep track of everything. I still, even to this day, I have to do a better job. On the one hand, there's a little bit of fortune at the moment that I'm not as busy as I have been. Of course, that's a two-sided coin and no pun intended, but it gives me the opportunity to be able to put some processes in place and put some structure in place to what I'm doing. So I don't make mistakes. But the biggest thing is just maybe not writing things down. (laughs) I need to get better at doing that, that sort of thing.
0: What are some things that you did extremely well? What are some like successes in general? What are some good habits that you've picked up over the years or that really helped you get to where you are today?
1: I've always had the work ethic that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing right. I've also always had the, I've always had a good work ethic and it doesn't matter what's in front of me. I'll figure out how to accomplish what I need to accomplish. And if it means more time, if it just means more energy going at it. If it means more focus, then I do it, you know, and the bottom line is I do what needs to be done to get it done, especially these days, right? I mean, doing it all, all myself, which in a few weeks, I'm going to be literally doing it all myself. I don't have anybody to, to fall back on. So I have to make sure that what I'm doing is, is right and timely. And, you know, that's, that's going to be the big thing.
0: Have you sort of ever felt insecure about not having a degree and if so how'd you sort of get past that feeling?
1: I may have way back. I don't know. I mean at the end of the day somebody who's my age if they've got a degree I would argue that it's not really providing them any value right now. Their experience over the last 20 years would be more value. I'm not saying by any stretch that that degrees aren't valuable, but you get to a certain point and and you do have to question do you worry more about a piece of paper or do you worry about a person's attitude and aptitude and ability and their track record? If it's somebody that's coming out of school, that's very different. There's no question about that. But if it's somebody who's in their forties or in their fifties now, I'm more concerned about what they've done than what kind of paper they have. Yeah. I don't, I don't worry about it now. I'm sure I did in the past, but if anything, and ironically enough, if anything, A limiting factor that I found after I left Lenovo when I was after I'd done that one job and I was I was in between and and figuring things out having worked for IBM and Lenovo in itself depending on where you were where you were applying and, and the types of jobs you were applying that could be a negative because it's known that IBM pays pretty well you see IBM in a resume and First thing they think of is, oh, the guy's looking for big bucks. I think that was more of a detriment to me than not having a resume at some point or not having a, a degree, sorry. Yes,
0: yeah, so they just assumed you're gonna ask for a lot of money. The other thing that was
1: that that was really interesting was I did find a lot of people were not interested in you if you had a varied background. If it was if if I was applying for a sales role, they'd say to me, Well, you've done too many other things. You're not focused on sales. If it was a marketing role, again, you've done too many other things. You're not focused on marketing. It's like, yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, if you've got a a rounded, experienced background, you've gained something. When it came to, when it came to the last company before this one, it was actually the diversity of what I'd done that was the attracting factor at first of my resume. The hiring manager, he looked at it and he's like, wow, okay, he's, he, this guy's done everything that I need him to do. And it was perfect. So, you know, it just had lined up. and And the fact that I had no degree
0: never even came up. What advice would you give yourself? Like you got to meet like your 18 year old self. What advice would you give yourself career wise? The first thing
1: that I would say is not to give yourself too much to the company you work for, because that's what I did. I gave myself wholeheartedly and naively expected that they would take care of me in return. It didn't quite work out that way.
0: Yeah, because companies always sort of make these promises, and if you do your part and they don't live up to it, you wasted your time, right? You wasted that effort; it could have been spent doing on you know other things.
1: Yeah, and after I left the brick, one of the things I I promised myself was I'm always going to keep my eyes open. And when I was there, I didn't, I was focused on what I was doing. I was doing it the best that I could. I was respected by, by my peers, by, by upper management. They knew what I was, what I was capable of. But in the end, it was, it was one person who ruined it for me, but it is what it is. And I'm not joking when I say this, the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to me deciding to leave there was. I was the merchandising manager in the flagship store. I reported to the operations manager who reported to the store manager. I had my annual review with my operations manager. He signed off on an increase and put it on his boss's desk. His boss, the store manager, signed off on it and put it on uh, what was the regional manager that I reported indirectly through. That regional manager turned it down. He turned it down because he saw me as a threat. When sadly, the only thing I was trying to do, I wasn't after his job. The only thing I was trying to do was make things better. If I saw something that wasn't right, if I saw there was a better way to do things, I would bring it up. Right. But he didn't, he didn't see it that way. He nixed the, the increase unknown to me after that happened. And don't laugh at this because it's a, it's, it's a true story. My wife picked up the phone and called head office in Edmonton. And, and I was, I was in Toronto and spoke to the VP of merchandising. She told him what happened. And the day that I resigned, day I handed in my resignation, the regional operations manager, who I'd known from my previous days at the, in the warehouse at the distribution center, was a great guy who I worked side by side with many times. He came in with an increase, but it was too late. I mean, your wife's the keeper she was just standing up for me. And I didn't even know she did it. He comes in and, you know, he he wants to, he wants to give me this increase. And I'm like, I just resigned, man. Sorry. But that just goes to show. And that's, I mean, that unfortunately is a flaw with a lot of people. Developing people underneath you is not a threat to your job. Again, you know, it could be the fact that, like I said, there's still people there doing the same jobs that they were doing when I was there. So it's not like there's a lot of room for movement. But in most instances, when you've got people underneath you that you can develop also gives you the opportunity to be able to move up and over and out. And, you know, because you you train your replacement. I'm a big fan of Richard Branson. And his statement about employees, his belief about employees is you treat employees well enough that they don't want to leave the customer doesn't come first your employees do you treat your you treat your employees the way that they should be treated you give them the the responsibility to do the job give them the autonomy to be able to 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 rectify problems if if they need to and they'll take care of your customers you don't need to worry about your customers but you don't have to break your employees to make your customers happy
0: No, I mean, thank you for just all the advice, all the background. You have such an interesting story. How would people get in contact with you and how would they support you? Well, contact,
1: I'm on pretty much every social media platform. My website is globalcoinsolutions.com. It is down at the moment because a brand new one is being finished off and put up. We just did the back end transition last night. So I'm hoping it's going to be up very, very soon. I can be reached through there. My phone number is on there. Email is on there. How you can help. I would say if you've, if you've got a charity that you believe in, then have a conversation with them and and encourage them to collect foreign currency or encourage them to have a conversation with me because there's a lot of money out there and nobody's going after it. So there's no competition right now. So the biggest, biggest problem with, with charities today is this. Cancer organization wants your dollar and this heart organization wants the same dollar and this dog rescue wants the same dollar and this children's hospital wants the same dollar. Well, where's it going to go? You can either divide it in four and split it up or one charity gets it all with foreign currency. You don't have that problem. One day, I hope so, but right now, uh, any charity that wants to go after it, there's a lot of money out there to be had. And if. You are a business who wants to support a charity. Again, reach out because I've got a program that we can help you. We can potentially help drive traffic to your business to support that charity. We've, I've got charities that I work with now who have retail partners and the retail partners are telling them people again, before COVID, people were coming in only to drop off the currency. At that point, it gives them the opportunity to convert that person to a customer. They never would have set foot in their store without that. If we can get them to your store, the rest is up to you. But that's the hardest part, right, is getting people to the store. This kind of a program can
0: do that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. I know a lot of people will get value of it and we'll definitely keep in touch. Thank
1: you very much. I appreciate your time.
0: Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash No Degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janayed Iqbal, spelled J O N A E D, last name I Q B A L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, no degree.com.
1: Yeah. So, you got no degree? No problem. No problem. I don't know. Any problem? We can solve them. We got this. Linked
0: insomnia
1: keeps us evolving,
0: <laughs> growing in and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you
1: know. Let's
0: sing that again, everybody.
1: No degree, no problem Any problem, we can solve them Linked insomnia Keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing
0: The wisdom is flowing If you didn't know Now you know where I'm going No degree, no problem Any problem, we can solve them Linked insomnia Keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing The wisdom is flowing If you didn't know Now you know where I'm going Yeah